and welcome back to Rupture Radio. It's Dermot here. Today I have an interview with Kieran McAdabui on an article he has written for Rupture Issue 8 on the impact capitalism has on minority languages and the struggles of the Irish language specifically. If you would like to read this article and many others, I will leave a link to Rupture Issue 8 in the episode description. The theme of this issue is imperialism, and it features articles on the war in Ukraine, imperialism today, and a host of other various topics. I'll switch over to the interview now. All right, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Rupture contributor Kieran McAdabui to discuss their recent article from the new issue of Rupture, Tagal and Eve. Cheers for joining me, Kieran. Great to be on. So just to get things started, I think many of our listeners would be aware of the struggling state many minority languages, including Irish, are in. One of the main arguments in your article is that capitalism commodifies language, and therefore pushing a rigid and highly functional view. Do you mind expanding on this idea a bit as a start? Well, definitely. I think it is a very interesting topic. But like to kind of get things started, I really have to plug the article that Owen Burns wrote for the magazine a while back. Like Owen kind of aptly points out that kind of neoliberal capitalism views languages as kind of outward facing tools with kind of a rigid value assigned to them on account of like economic benefit. Like in this lens under capitalism, like languages are solely seen as kind of useful, quote unquote, if we were able to sell things through them. I think Owen has this line where he states that like minority languages are kind of seen either being like a futile hobby for cranks or like an active straight on burden. As kind of a really funny example of this neoliberal logic, there's this one clip from the lads behind Peep Show like on Scott's Gaelic that went viral a while back where this logic is kind of laid out quite directly like it's essentially argued that there's like no reason to learn Scots Gaelic as all speakers of fluency in English with the guy arguing that like learners should instead like look at something like Hindi or Mandarin as they'd be able to speak to new people and like I do kind of like Mitchell and Webb but I think it kind of cuts through to that like neoliberal logic that I'm trying to depict at the start of my article and like to make a bad joke I think we've all kind of become very acquainted lately with the fact that there's no better way to like to pick the worst capitalist arguments than like a video in which like a, a member of England's ruling class kind of starts trying to scolding you and like it's kind of a assumed that like you solely learn a language to communicate the idea of like any specific culture or literature existing is like completely ignored and the idea that like languages can have like an internal function isn't even mentioned it's also kind of assumed that languages are kind of like this either or thing neither learn a useful or a useless one and that's it and again this kind of like flies in the face of reality and unsurprisingly it just seems like a little bit snobby but kind of like returning to one's like argument he notes that under capitalism there's this trend of like global language shift with like minority languages just dying off at an accelerated pace communities that do speak minority languages are pressured by the logic of capital out of existence and generally on account of like economic grounds and i think this trend of like language shift is like a essential to understanding why socialists should also like, support minority language rights. Like with capitalism kind of trending towards like homogenization and commodification of culture and identity. And I think inherent to this commodification is the imposition of certain mental values and assumptions and acceptance of the place, quote unquote, of certain peoples. Again, it's kind of really interesting because under capitalism, it's assumed that like serious or interesting works can only take place in languages like English or French. And the argument is like, 
very often raised that like minority languages are like naturally inferior and backward and spoken by people who are seen as like associated with the past tense solely. And I think this attitude has been kind of displayed time and time again by the Irish ruling class. Like there was this really good blog post a few years back from Colin O'Brien kind of outlining some egregious examples of like how the media is like portray the Irish language. The claims made that the Irish language never existed, that like new words hadn't been formed for like a hundred years, that English is like inherently superior and that the Irish language is inherently associated with like muck savagery, whatever that means. I think like media coverage in general has been quite negative towards Irish and it also kind of ignores it a lot. Like you don't really see what's going on like the literary and cultural scenes. Instead, you just kind of see like this endless depiction about like peg and the leaving cert and like the question of like having it as a mandatory subject. And I think that like Irish speakers are generally just depicted as either really not existing or just being like a bunch of cranks. And I think this commodification of language kind of also extends to how we learn a little bit, like with priority being given to output, are you just speaking and writing over input, just actually understanding things? Like instead of kind of learning languages to understand people, we instead just kind of do endless rounds of like Duolingo and learn off ready-made sentences in the hopes of just like getting fluency from there. But like to summarize what I'm trying to say, because I did just touch on a lot of ground there, neoliberal capitalism reduces languages down to the bare minimum necessary to engage in commerce. And I think as part of that, it reduces minority languages just down to being in the past tense. Tying in with this perception of language, you launch into the works of Nagui Wathongo, investigating the links between colonialism and notions of linguistic value. Would you be able to give an outline of these ideas? I mean, firstly, I really need to recommend his book, Decolonizing the Mind. I think it covers like the process quite well, and it's very interesting kind of like drawing contrast between what the author experienced and what's been experienced here. I think one of like the main things we need to do is differentiate between the external and the internal functions of language. Like on a basic level, like languages are tools of communication. However, like I don't think this really captures the full picture. Languages kind of shape the way in which we see the world. Like they set our frames of reference, they transmit culture, and they form the basis of kind of any literature. And like, I think to destroy a language, to destroy a certain way of looking at the world. And I think colonists are like very aptly aware of this. They kind of understand the need to destroy ways of seeing that like conflict with their plunder. I think in the Irish context, this can be seen most blatantly if you look at the works like Edmund Spencer, who stated that like the destruction of the Irish language was necessary as like, in his words, the words are the image of the mind. The mind must needs be affected with the word. So that the speech being Irish, the heart must needs to be Irish. For out of the abundance the heart, the tongue speaketh. Like quite blatantly, as he said, like for the colonization of Ireland to work, there is a need for us to like view the world through the lens of our colonizers, devalue our past and our future through disregarding our language. Referring to Bahago, like he raises the argument that like colonization utilizes what he terms as like the cultural bomb of language shift to destroy kind of the identity of colonized peoples. He argues that like the adoption of the English language served as kind of one of the most important areas of domination for imperialist capitalism, with the language question kind of tying in with how people perceive themselves and their relationship to the world. Again, like as he terms it, like by using the English language, as people were kind of looking at the world through the eyes of their oppressor, creating kind of an alienation from like their natural and social environment. Again, he has some like very powerful language to describe this process. Again, he has this line where it's like, if the bullet was the means of the physical subjugation, language is the means of the spiritual subjugation. And I think there are like very clear contrasts that could be drawn here to like the Irish context. And like, it is a really interesting thing to think about. Like, again, like destruction of the Irish language was a key aspect of England's colonial policy in Ireland. Like, although these events kind of accelerated, 
following the Battle of Kinsale, they were there prior and they are still there to some extent. And like, as pointed out by Forgan McGonraig, like while the penal laws did not necessarily devalue Irish explicitly, like the, the Anglo-Irish ascendancy did. And like a process of language shift from English towards Irish started, with people kind of turning to English to kind of integrate themselves into the new order. And I think this attitude from English, English colonists towards the Irish language is seen most blatantly if you look at the education system. Like again, mirroring what's happened in other colonized countries that languages that you just beat out children serving as a non-language and this idea was also internalized that like having Irish prevents children from like acquiring English which is something that would prevent them from making a living which kind of created this economic thing where like you have the colonization it ties in with kind of the logic of capital they both kind of come together to kind of go against against the minority language but like if you tie this in with like the demographic catastrophe of the famine kind of you see the seeds of language shift taking hold and with this kind of rapid decline in the areas in which Irish was like the main language communication and this seed has not been changed we're still in that position I think it all starts with this process but we're still living through that process even though we have supposed independence in like 26 counties yeah and and to bring that specifically into an Irish context you raised that the treatment of the Irish language by both statelets north and south on the island is rooted in the impacts of colonialism and that view still impacts its teaching today um, and also the historical approach so we might begin with that historical approach and and you can explain uh, what this was taken towards the Irish language. No, definitely. And like something I do need to stress and something I tried stressing in the article is like the extent to which like the relationship shared by both states on this island towards the Irish language is kind of shaped by colonialism. And I think like obviously this thing takes on a very more blatant form in the six counties, but like derision and hostility shown towards Irish speakers kind of mirroring the kind of the colonial and like sectarian nature of the state. I think like the refusal of the DUP to even pass the Irish language act this year kind of mirrors this. Like they refuse to accept it. They will just view it as a hobby language, quote unquote, and go on with like full derision. However, I think if you look at like the 26 county state, like the link can also be observed. It's just in a more subtle form. Like again, we have to remind ourselves of the fact that Irish capitalism developed within a colonial model. With the interests of English-speaking capitalists picking up where like explicit colonial policy left off. Like while government parties in the 26 county state like make performative gestures supporting the language, actual policy very rarely goes beyond kind of the ceremonial. Like the English language is still viewed as like the valuables of fault and like financial concerns will always kind of trump linguistic ones. Like at the moment, I'm currently reading John Walsh's amazing book, 100 Years of Irish Language Policy. And I think his analysis of like the Whaletoft Commission is like a really apt example of this. Like again, the early free state government commissioned a report on the state of the language and the areas in which it was spoken, kind of exposing high rates of poverty, the need for action and rapid language shift. And again, in response to this, the commission raised a series of like surprisingly radical demands to counter this, like demands such as like offering free second level education to those in the Gwaeltoft, ensuring Irish speakers are hired in public jobs, serving Gwaeltoft areas, and like the redistribution of land to favour Irish speakers. However, like you look at the response the government had, the civil service just kind of balked the report, like they refused to implement like any of the policies as it went against some of the state's financial interests, like a habit the 26 county state has fallen into quite well. There is this like blatant thing where like, the Irish language is nice to have, but the second that like financial concerns arise, we're like, never mind, let's just go back to English. And I think like in general, in the last 100 years, the state has refused to deal with the crisis facing the Gwildoch. Instead, kind of prioritizing a largely ceremonial view of the language, directed more like getting people to use like Koopa Fuckel as opposed to like actually living through the language. And I think like even then we've seen this like gradual winding down of the ceremonial aspect. Like rather than letting the language die directly, 
and abruptly and kind of draw attention to it. It often feels that like in the 26 county state, the language is just being let die quite slowly and just being let just kind of pass away without people necessarily noticing. Perfect. And in the piece itself, you uh, you cite a recent review in the Irish Times in which Alan Titley argues, I think quite concisely, uh, that the 26 counties approach to the Irish language is one of commission a report, mull it over, make pleasant positive noises, do a little bit, procrastinate, find reasons to do a little bit more, say more nice things and then commission another report. What is the current situation facing the Irish language on both sides of the border? To make like a very harsh comparison, I think the current situation facing the language often feels like the climate crisis. Like there are very bleak things kind of on the way, like these bleak things are kind of rooted in capitalism, but there's also kind of like motivating grassroots attempts to fight back. So it's not necessarily all bleak. And I think like the grassroots struggles like taking place in the six counties are like particularly motivating, like in spite of like the state's complete apathy, we've seen working class people organizing themselves around the language, either around or against the state. And I think those struggles are really borne fruit. If you look at like this, like the recent census, there was a 16% rise in the amount of people in the north who said they had Irish. And that's a major thing. If you look at like, the 26 counties, the figures are like a bit more vague with the questions in the 2016 census being worded quite awkwardly and not necessarily accounting for like proficiency in the language. However, in the 2016 census, it was noted that like 39.8% of the country could speak Irish, which is a, a decrease of like 13,000 compared to the 2011 census. And I think when you look at like contemporary approaches to the language, like the government in the 26 county state often intentionally blurs the line between T1 speakers, who are those who like speak the language as home as their primary language, and like T2 speakers, who are those who are kind of learn the language either outside or inside the education system. And I think there's like a very common habit of either like down playing the differences between T1 and T2 or like pretending both groups are like diametrically opposed. I think Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are very guilty of pretending they're like the exact same with their language policy often just being based around the education system and just getting English speakers to just use Google Focal and like there's nothing necessarily wrong with these schemes but I think there's a they're like a drop in the water compared to like what's happening in the Gwelta. And even then like these ceremonial or like more learner directed schemes just get cut the second things hit the fan. Like again, if you look at the wave of austerity following the 2008 recession, it very clearly sped up a decline that was already under place. And in my opinion, kind of exposed how shallow the like 26 county states commitment to the language was. Like again, there's this great article from Ben O'Kellig last year for Core Tida on this topic, kind of observing the impact of austerity on the Irish language. Like he observed that like austerity measure, measures disproportionately targeted the Gwaeltoft, with a 38% cut being pushed for the Department of Community Equality in Gwaeltoft Affairs, which was the largest cut suggested, and then a 58% internal cut in Gwaeltoft spending. And I think O'Kellig's point around these cuts is quite interesting. He argues that these shifts show that the structural nature of the Wales Ox decline and the structural nature of like the situation facing the language. And he kind of makes this point that like activists have to go beyond viewing these attacks like from Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil as like the result of like individual politicians, but instead as something like structural and like central to the operation of the state. It is central to like our place in capital and we have to like understand that really. And again, I think mirrors of this austerity could be seen in the North earlier this year when like the Northern Irish Educational Authority threatened a 98% cut in the funding for Clorna Mona, which is an Irish language youth club active in West Belfast. Like this cut is like quite dramatic 
and it kind of mirrors the hostility the six county state shows towards the language. But I think like the 26 county state sometimes just uses the same methods, just a lot more subtle. These cuts that were raised were reversed, but only following protests. And I think that is another thing that we have to learn that like we need to be able to come up and respond to these ways of austerity. But like just going back to like this idea, like I think in the free state, we see the Irish language die a death by a thousand cuts. Like the state can't admit that they're just going to let the language die outright because it would draw controversy. So they're just letting it die in, in slow motion in the hopes people don't know us and that people don't really do anything about it as a result. So you specifically note the importance of Gale talk to communities in the preservation of the Irish language. In the article, you quote a stark study showing that only 23% of parents in the Gaeltacht are raising their children through Irish. And you also highlight a number of other structural barriers that these communities are facing. Could you explain the importance of the Gaeltacht communities and the problems which they're facing? Definitely. So, like, in very stark terms, I think the loss of the Gaeltacht, which are communities in which Irish is spoken on a daily basis, would be kind of like the loss would be a point of no return for the language and it's something we have to fight to prevent and like there was a good article from like Patrick like Oscar last year on the question of like whale talk housing and he pointed out that like the whale talk represents the last areas of Ireland where Irish is naturally used in most if not all aspects of daily life in particularly the workplace as opposed to an object of study a social outlet or a hobby once we lose these communities, we lose any vitality in the language. I think that is a very important point, something we do have to raise time and time again. I think what is key about Gaelic talk communities is this idea of like intergenerational transmission, which is like parents speaking Irish to their children and ensuring these children speak Irish as a native language. This doesn't mean like solely speaking Irish, and it doesn't impede on the child's ability to learn English. Again, the only real problem with like intergenerational transmission of Irish is that it just kind of goes against the logic and interests of capital. And I think like when we're looking at like the state of the Gaelic talk, it is we have to talk about the question of immigration. I think it's key to understanding why there's been a rapid acceleration in language shift. Like on account of like the economic destitution that was facing those in the Gaelic historically, like you did see parents start prioritizing the acquisition of English in their children as opposed to the acquisition of Irish. Like you would have parents who would just solely speak broken English to their children in the hopes that this would allow them to like move on and live a better life in England or America. And again, kind of to implement themselves better into the capital systems and look at it quite blatantly. And I think like around this time as well, you did see this attitude arise that the Irish language necessarily backwards language. It was something associated with poverty, with a kind of it was something that was going against the pull of capital, with capital kind of luring us towards English. But like this idea that like you had to learn English by itself to implement yourself is not true. It's not like accurate at all because like Acquiring Irish as a, child, as a child will not impede your ability to acquire another language. And like, again, all it really requires is like going against what is profitable and kind of this idea of like what is immediately relevant to capital, which is something like that, which is something that is quite hard to do even to this day. Like in practical terms, like if you're raising a child through Irish, like it is quite hard to work out how you how you like navigate childcare, for example. It's just these minor headaches that like build up to make the idea hard and require kind of going against the tide of it. And I think kind of like tying back into that question of like the contemporary decline in the Gaelic talk, I think like the question of housing is like very central to understanding like why the Irish language is declining in the way it is, with an inability for like Gaelic talk families to live in Gaelic talk areas, kind of aiding the death of the language. Like returning to Potter McUsker, who's involved in K2 and Mishnah, like he published a really interesting article last year on kind of the extent to which kind of like holiday homes and Airbnbs like cannibalize the housing stock within the Gaelic One of the examples he gives is in Kerry with only three houses available to rent through Daft 
Cardiff.ie, but 219 holiday homes available for tourists. Now, according to Podrick, like the high rate of profit makes kind of whale-talked areas extremely attractive to like institutional investors. And for these like institutional investors, there's a lot more money to be made by just renting to tourists in summer and just leaving houses empty in the winter than there is actually selling to the local community. Like again, we can it's more profitable to like turn these areas into like a Disneyland as opposed to like actually having people living there. And again, like tying into that question of housing, we've also kind of seen the steady gentrification of Gwaltoch areas, like particularly around Galway, with like Gwaltoch areas being seen as kind of attractive for those kind of moving out of the city. Now, this isn't solely confined to Connemara, though, like with people outside the Kerry Gwaltoch published like purchasing 70% of the houses in the area. Once again, it is kind of more profitable to like accelerate language decline than it is to actually try and go and prevent it. And again, things aren't really much better for those who try building their own houses, like with issues around planning permission, kind of angering those in the Gwaltoch. Like again, we've seen people like unsuccessfully fight for years in the court to build housing and land their families owned, only for large investors to kind of get permission to build estates locals can't afford to live in. And now I don't necessarily think that like one-off housing is like a solution to the housing crisis facing the Gwaltoch, but this inability to like pursue the final option available, I think kind of accelerates language decline and then kind of incentivizes young people moving away to English-speaking areas. It's hard to imagine a future in a space where you can't even have a home. I think that is very important. So returning to that like, idea of emigration, I think whale talk theories specifically were hit quite hard by like the wave of emigration that kind of faced the generation that came of age after the decline of the Celtic tiger. Like a lack of employment and housing incentivized like native Irish speakers to either move to English speaking parts of the country or move abroad. And again, like it often seems like as if whale talk theories like face similar crises to the rest of rural Ireland, just that they experience them in accelerated form. There was a drop of like 2,574 people in the whale talk between 2011 and 2016. And that is a notable figure. And it shows the extent to which kind of like 2008 had an impact on the language. I think when we're talking about like the position of the whale talk at the moment, there's a very interesting question of authority as well. And again, like, I think it's necessary to some extent for Gwaltoch communities to have autonomy over their communities as opposed to kind of letting county councils make crucial decisions over questions like housing. Because again, we've seen time and time again, like we've had like county councillors who are from outside the Gwaltoch and even some who are on the inside, but they, because their financial interests are directed more towards like uh, the interests of like investors, they will make decisions that will threaten the Gwaltoch just, just to make money. I think that is something that we have to counter. And again, like to just summarize what I've been trying to say in the last few minutes, I think like just in general, the language is being strangled and has been strangled by the forces of capital. So despite this bleak situation facing the language, you mentioned that there has been a wider history of struggle amongst Irish speakers and that these struggles have brought about multiple victories for the Irish language. Could you explain this history for us? Firstly, hopefully this is like one of the more optimistic parts of this episode, but like I think like Irish speakers have fought for like nearly every single right they have won in recent history, kind of being happy to engage in radical action against the state to kind of win these reforms. I think like the best example, one of the most motivational examples of this is the Gwaltoch Civil Rights Movement, or Gluchach Kjartusvilta and the Gwaltoch, which was a group of radicals active in the late 60s and the early 70s. And like this group are willing to like confront the state directly over their failure to adequately 
address the crisis facing the world of picketing houses, placing nails under the wheels of the Taoiseach's car, and petitioning Conor Nguelga to hold Arathas Nguelga outside of Dublin. And again, one of their main demands as an organisation related to the question of broadcasting, with kind of members arguing that there's a need for like a, a radio station covering the whale duct. In protest, like members set up a pirate station called Sir Radio Connemara, which is like Free Radio Connemara, to outline kind of the 26 county states' failure to cover their communities. This like scheme, even though it was illegal, like kind of shamed the 26 county states into forming RT Radio Nagwaltukta, which is a radio station that has had an insane impact on the Irish language. It broke barriers between like accents, like it gave Gwaltach communities their own voice and it's helped preserve an insane amount of Irish folklore and music over the years. And it's very notable that this only happened because a series of radicals and socialists inconvenienced the state into doing it, essentially. And I think like it's notable that like there's this line of continuity where you see these struggles. You look at like TG Carr, for example, it only exists due to the work of activists for decades around the country. And again, like there's a very notable example of a non-payment campaign of the TV license where activists were only paying 13% of their license fee to like represent the amount of RTE's output that was in Irish. And people spent time in prison as a result. I think it is very motivating that like these people were willing to make these sacrifices that they were able to actually win from it. And I think that like these grassroots struggles kind of leading into our next question a little bit are also very visible in the North. With like a lot of Republican prisoners in troubles getting out and kind of working in their communities around the question of the language. I think there's like really inspirational things there. And I really recommend Fergal McGonraghig's book, Language Resistance and Revival on this topic. Like again, you see grassroots groups like Lorna Mona who run like things like youth clubs through Irish in their communities. And they're working on a small scale in their local communities around the language question organizing outside of the classroom outside of like the respectable parts of like the revival if you want to use that term they're organizing for their communities through the language i think there is something really important to that i also think in terms of struggle there's a, like to use a broader definition of the term i think it is good looking at the work done by groups like Nguyen who are like a ga team who like operate through solely through irish and like even though it is a form of struggle that's separate from like necessarily directly confronting the state, like it's helped play a role in like making families be able to use the Irish language. It makes a role in like making normalizing the language and it makes a role in kind of like making people see themselves as Irish speakers. I think there is importance in there. And I think there, there are important things to be learned from those struggles, even though it like kind of differ, like it differs from like traditional forms if you want to use it. But I think it is valuable nonetheless. And then following up on kind of the optimistic um, perspective that comes from movements around the Irish language. Earlier in the year, many listeners would be aware that we've seen roughly 17,000 people marching down the streets of Belfast for Onlaw Jarg, demanding uh, an Irish language act in the six counties. What are the takeaways from this mobilisation and the other actions of groups like Andram Jarg? Just to condense that down to the basics, like people are willing to struggle for the language if you organise around it correctly, but this just can't be done overnight. I think that's the main thing we can draw from like the amazing turnout for Anla Jarg this year. Like in my article, I do quote from like an organiser who noted that like what was happening in Belfast that day was part of a longer journey. It wasn't a flash in the pan, but instead the result of a slow burn. And I think that slow burn is particularly important in understanding why we seen this mobilization and i think that like there's a need for us to expand this slow burn and specifically for those in the 26 counties there's a need to learn from Andram Jarek and like what has been done in grassroots communities that have organized themselves in the north like again it's kind of insane to me that like on like on large hour didn't get a lot more media coverage considering this like the sheer size of the protest like seventeen thousand people is an insane number and like that many people mobilized 
is major. And I think that like we have to learn to understand how we were able to get that turnout and see if there is a way we can kind of go beyond kind of the bare minimum. Because again, like I do understand that like there have been some criticisms of Andram Jarek for like taking kind of a reformist kind of defensive approach towards the language. Like again, for better or for worse, like their strategy relies heavily on kind of like tying themselves in with some of the false promises that were laid out in the Good Friday Agreement and essentially just kind of like scolding the state and the Tories when they fail to deliver on them. But like at the same time, I think that like shouting from the sidelines about how Stormont can't deliver isn't really a productive approach. And I think it's unlikely to win people over. And I think rather than kind of lecturing people hitting the brick, brick wall of capitalism or the brick wall of Stormont, I think it's like, it's more important to hit those limits with them, kind of showing how our, like socialist tactics would work through practice and showing like why there's a need to go beyond capitalism in like a in like through practice as opposed to just from the sidelines. And I think like when you look at all that, like there are many things that we can learn from it. There are many things that are motivating from it. And it's like there's a need for like a two way relationship where like we can show our ideas while also simultaneously understanding how they were able to get to that point. And then on that point of taking lessons from the movement, you also mention in the article the Shaw's Road Urban Gale Talk as a possible model for basing future struggles for the language around. Would you be able to give a quick explanation to listeners about what this was and uh, what function it played and also um, yeah, what the lessons are we can take? Perfect. Again, I think like the Shaw's Road Urban Gale Talk is one of the most motivating stories related to the Irish language in recent history and it's really notable as well because it's like the one area of the country that has moved from speaking English to Irish in recent memory and that is notable in and of itself that like despite the state's attempts at revival the only people that really could do it were working class people organizing themselves and again like you look at the Shaw's Road Whale Talk you had working class people literally building their own houses from the ground up in order to raise their children through Irish kind of struggling against the state in the process and again like tying back to the last Last question, this success was grounded in a slow burn of activist works prior. And again, you would not have had the Shaw's Road Whale Talk without Cullen Clunard. Now, Cullen Clunard was a branch of Conor Nguelga that was rooted in the working class. Interestingly enough, one of the founders of this club was actually a communist himself. Again, like it was a group of working class people who were just holding events in their community through Irish. And they made kind of this interesting decision after a while to go against bilingualism and instead just run events solely through Irish that appealed to normal people. Again, it was about kind of luring people in, getting them involved, making them see the language as theirs. And again, by doing this and by holding these events, they were able to draw people in and get them involved in a way that like the education system couldn't. And again, like from this core, like you did have a bunch of regulars who made the decision that they wanted to raise the children through Irish and they wanted to do so collectively. They believed that like doing it on an individual level didn't work, so they realised there was a need to organise. And as part of this, they, they built their own houses, they built the first Irish medium education school in the north, and they struggled to get to these points. Like Again, the state refused to accept their school, but they continued on anyways. And again, the most important thing about the struggle is the fact that it worked, which is very notable in the context of the Irish language. We're now seeing the third generation coming up in that area, like speaking Irish as their native language. And I think that shows like what we can win if we go beyond kind of the limits of what is respectable and we start organizing around or against the state. 
I think there's a need for us to kind of look at the Shaw's Road Whale Thought and like talk about scaling something similar upwards as kind of a goal in the immediate term. The late Thomas Maximal had some really interesting points on this. Like he had this idea in The Broken Heart that like if you were to counter language decline, it would be done through like networks of Irish speakers that are self-organized who like set themselves up to do something similar on a larger scale. And I think this is a struggle that's like worth fetching out. And I think it's a struggle that us on the left will be playing a role in. And I think it's a role that we should be taking. So to quote the end of your article, we need to view the language question as a continuous issue as opposed to a cultural side project, tying revival into our wider goal for a break from capitalism and imperialism. What steps are being taken on the left towards this shift? And what are the lessons to take away from this idea? Again, kind of to mirror my article again, I think on the left, like the language question has to be a continuous process and it can't be a one-sided one. And I like, in general, I don't think socialists should be coming in from a high and just saying, oh, hey, the problem is capitalism without actual engagement. Like we need to be able to listen and kind of like pay attention to what is going on either kind of from the inside or on the outside. As part of this, I think like socialist outlets should be paying active attention and giving coverage to the crisis facing the Gaelic and the Irish language. Like there's this very common complaint like amongst the Irish language media that like the English language press completely kind of ignores what's going on in the language. And like obviously to some extent, this is something that's inevitable by virtue of language shift. I think this is something that we on the socialist left can counter on like a smaller scale. And hopefully like through this episode, we've kind of made some steps in that process. And hopefully it's this won't be the last step. And hopefully we'll be able to cover things more in depth in the future. And again, like when it comes to that question of like how socialists should engage with the language question, the idea of like the dual task, I think is particularly pertinent. Like again, as I said in the article, like organizing for minority language rights or just for the Irish language brings you directly in front of the limits of capitalism. You're hitting your head against the wall. And I think they're like very valuable lessons to be learned from any group that is engaged in that kind of struggle. And But the only way we can actually draw those lessons out and the only way we can kind of improve our strategies as a result is to actually sit down, listen and engage. I think that is the central thing. And again, like as a member of RISE and PPP, I'm quite happy to say that we've started taking steps towards this. Like again, we voted for a Gwilga caucus earlier in the year within PPP, and now the What We Stand For for RISE specifically mentions the crisis facing the Gwildeacht. I also think it's notable that like in PPP, like members played like a decent role in building on Dram Jarg. Again, like there was a great article in the IMR from a few years ago on this topic. But hopefully these are kind of like the first steps of many. I think like hopefully like on the left as a whole, we will see more engagement around this. This is one quote from Martin O'Kayan that you'll always hear Irish at the most progressive part of a protest. And like, sadly, like this is a little bit of an overstatement, but I think like if we're in a position where we see like a mass left party developing in this country, we will see the language question become more and more important on a moral level, on a tactical level, and just on a practical level. Because realistically speaking, the same people who want to organize their communities around the language question question, understand why capitalism is bad, why there's a need to go beyond that, and they understand how you go about doing those things. And those are the, like, the lessons that would be necessary for a broad left party. So I do see there will be an overlap if we do see one growing. And again, like to organise for the language is to organise in your community against the immediate interests of capitalists. And that's something we on the left are quite used to. I think we on the left have something to offer if we're able to engage and kind of work out in that process. But regardless, I think that like Hopefully this will be a continuous thing and hopefully like in the future, either on the podcast, or the magazine, we can cover some topics more in depth in the future. Yeah, here's hoping uh, that going forward we can we can feature 
uh, the perspective a lot more. And I think this gives a, a very good sense of your article. So I'll just leave a link to that in the episode description. And if any listeners want to give it a listen, they can find or give it a read rather, they can find it there. So thanks a million for joining me, Kieran. Uh Hopefully we can talk about this again down the line.